0: Hates. Hope Not Hate are basically controlling Britain. Hope Not Hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backward thinking, virtue virtue signaling, fake news craves. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Hope Not Hate podcast. Thank you for joining us and hopefully subscribing. Please tell all your friends you've discovered the podcast on hate. My name is Sophia. I'm the journalist for Hope Not Hate. And with me is Martin, who has been hanging out with the alt-right in Japan. Say hi, Martin.
2: Hi, that's not accurate, but (laughs) (laughs) but I have been abroad.
1: And Matthew McGregor, who's joining us for the first time. He is the campaigns director for Hope Not Hate.
0: Hello, thank you for having me.
1: Joe, our senior researcher, has been marooned away on a deserted island, which is actually a conference on hate speech, and will be back for the next podcast. So this week, we have three topics which have caught our interest. We also have an interview with Paul Giannassi, who is a police superintendent, and we'll be talking to him about free speech and hate speech. And finally, we'll be exploring how weird the alt-right can get. So Martin, why don't you tell us what you want to talk about this week?
2: Absolutely. Um, in my absence, the local elections took place uh, last Thursday. And amid the, the results and the reports you, you may have read, um, obviously here at Hope Not Hate, uh, what caught our eye and was of great interest to us was the performance of the vast spectrum of far-right parties. And I'm very pleased to announce that they, they, they did terribly, um, which uh, we were all hoping for. We could all but guarantee, given the recent performance across the spectrum of the far-right um, at the ballot box, and it's been confirmed in their performance um, in last Thursday's elections. The most prominent of that, of course, is UKIP, um, who were dealt a huge blow nationally. I think they lost across 118 different seats, made a couple of gains uh, here and there, but I mean, the, the the message is very clear that UKIP was defeated at the ballot box, which we've seen yeah, coming. Sounded for a, long a bit time. like
1: the Battle of. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: we, we've seen this coming for a long time. You know, they've been through uh, so many leadership elections. We're talking about sort of a, a, a party that had made big gains at local elections uh, four years ago. And it's, since then, we've seen the decline be be massive and they've sort of fallen off a cliff. And we're really, we're really proud as an organisation that has campaigned really hard against all far-right parties, but the one that's been obviously um, the most successful in recent times is UKIP. We're, we're, really, um, we're really pleased with these results, of course.
1: What do you think this means for UKIP?
2: Um, for UKIP, you know, we've seen them trend in a very deliberate direction under the new leader, Gerard Batten, and that is to bring themselves under sort of a single issue, which is anti-Islam. We're going to talk more about that, I think, uh, on this podcast. Similarly to another major figure, previous old figure in, in UK, Anne-Marie Waters, we've seen them as a party move away from uh, electoral issues that appeal to large portions of the country to a very, very uh, anti-Muslim agenda.
1: Which is a very broad one, so I assume that's good for supporters?
2: It's, it's hard to say, I mean, because resoundingly, the, the votes haven't been there, right? And again, it's something I think we're going to talk about is like anti-Muslim sentiments across this country may not be waning or they may have grown, in fact, in recent times. When it comes to voting issues, this doesn't seem to be something that's resonating... uh with voters, or at least UKIP have failed to capture mm. and translate that message into votes.
1: So people are going elsewhere for that?
0: I think going elsewhere or or going entirely, you know, the, their vote did drop massively and they lost a massive number of seats. Um, but it looks like they still got around 5-6% of the vote uh, in these local elections. So I don't think that the the threat of UKIP has, has gone entirely and, and it is a worry that they are Drifting off further to the far right, uh, under under Batten, he did an interview with Tommy Robinson on Stephen Lennon's uh, uh, YouTube channel, and so I think that's something that we'll see increasingly uh, a much more vitriolic uh, tone and uh, a much uh, a nastier undertone, and that's a problem because UKIP have at least a veneer of respectability mm-hmm. amongst the the mainstream media. Uh, Jared Batten was on. Uh, one of the Sunday shows during the election, being way more extreme than Nigel Farage did when he was on Which is TV. weird to hear, too. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, that's, that's, not to, that's not to imply that Nigel Farage is some kind of moderate. It's <laughs> to really underline just how extreme UKIP are getting now.
2: Uh, notably, you know, a big campaign, the Hope Not Hate ran, and we talked about in the last podcast was against a uh, major UKIP figure, Bill Etheridge uh, in Dudley. We produced some really great leaflets. And we took those around Dudley um, and put them through letterboxes. Good news is that Bill Etheridge is out of Dudley Council. Um, huge success. Uh, huge congratulations to the Hope Not Hate team who worked very, very hard. And thank you to all of our supporters and volunteers who got involved with the campaign to to get rid of a really nasty figure as well. So really, really happy about that.
1: It's good to see an effective campaign like that target something.
2: Absolutely. And Dudley's been an area of interest for for us for a long time. We've campaigned there for many years. Um so really, really exciting. About that, I think another notable thing to discuss from Thursday night's results is the performance of Four Britain. So, as mentioned, anne Marie Waters, who used to be uh, involved with UKIP, this was her new venture. Again, a, a very, very uh, anti-Muslim party. That is their their real issue. They lost in every place that they stood and came last in the vast majority of them. So. Uh, fair to say a terrible performance from from this new anti-Muslim
0: movement.
1: Was Anne-Marie Waters at the rally? Uh, I think, Matthew, you wanted to talk about the free speech rally this last week.
0: Uh, yeah, the, the Day for Freedom, they called it, uh, mm-hmm. rally in, in central London, where a whole range of figures from across the far right uh, got together for a rally on Whitehall. Uh, literally within shouting distance of the gates of number 10 uh, Downing Street. It was a really professionally put together operation. They had a a big stage, a really giant screen, impressive sound system. It it must have cost thousands of pounds to to put together and and to organize. They got about three, four thousand people um in attendance um
1: have they been claiming more by any chance because i've seen <laughs> different numbers
0: they, they have been they've been claiming a, a, a bit more and it's is is often you know often very difficult to be exact but i think a, three or four thousand is, is a good estimate so the event brought together a whole range of alternative right organizations and was supported by uh, people from across the far right generation identity was there the youth wing of ukip uh for britain white Plain dragons is kind of slightly quirky. Group headed up by a a guy with a conviction for racism. That
1: sounds like a TV series. (laughs) <laughs> sorry just i was thinking of merlin arthur and i guess that's where
0: <laughs> i think that's the i think that's partly the idea um uh edl flags um the football lads alliance the democratic football lads alliance uh the people's football lads alliance uh, <laughs> basically all a lot the lads of <laughs> i made that last one up <laughs> um, uh, but also some of those celebrities from the from the alt-right gavin McInnes, the um, uh, uh, Canadian um, uh, alt right uh, guy Milo uh, Yiannopoulos, uh, Jared Batten was on on stage as well. It, it was kind of you know it was I, I, it was a weird way to spend my Sunday watching the the live stream um, of that. Um, we had uh, hope not hate staff in attendance. Uh, as well to to kind of uh, follow what was what was going on. It was it was kind of there was a there was an element of slapstick about it. It was a, a bit of a clown car, um, uh, uh, you know, the speakers from stage, grown adult men with names like Sargon of Akkad and Count Dankula. Um, that's my favorite, that's definitely my favorite. <laughs> that's a good one. And you know, Gavin McInnes he introduced Milo y- Yiannopoulos. Uh, Gavin McInnes introduced him with a joke about uh, pedophilia, which went down. Rather badly with the audience. Even this audience was mm-hmm. was over the line. I mean,
1: just because you hate Muslims, it doesn't mean you're, you can't <laughs> accept that,
0: right? And and it was kind. Of, so there was a kind of a, a sort of a slight slap slapstick about it. But this is, I think, a, a real um, a wake up call. That this is a, a, an attempt to bring together under Tommy Robinson, or Stephen Lennon's uh, leadership, a kind of a popular front of the of the far right this was a rally that they tried to make as much as they possibly could. The masks slipped very regularly, but they tried to make this about free speech, not the traditional themes of um, of hate that uh, the far right uh, uh, traditionally go on. Like I said, the masks slipped really regularly, but they are trying to broaden their appeal and build this kind of popular front of the, of the far right in an attempt to grow their appeal. They've been beaten back at the ballot box. Martin was just talking about all of the different myriad ways in which they've um, been um, losing at the ballot box. And this yeah. is an attempt to grow their influence on the streets to, to complement their growing influence online.
2: Given how poorly they have uh, performed politically, like do, was there a significance of the fact that this was held outside number 10? Is that because they, they feel their real mantra now is the government and the, the structures that exist in this country are preventing
0: people, real people, from having a voice? I mean, this is the ironic thing about the the event is that they were complaining about not being allowed to criticize Islam from a massive stage in the middle of Whitehall within (laughs) shouting distance of number 10, live streamed to thousands of people online, Mm. protected by uh, the police. And and, it's like a a shining example of the fact they do have uh, free speech to say uh, what they said about uh, Muslims and, and Islam. But I think that they are attempting to mimic the success of some of the far right groups in Europe, like the Gert Wilders uh, movement and, and, and in Holland, and um, the the Front National in, in France, who have tried to broaden out their appeal by not just running on the traditional themes of the far right, but running against the establishment, being against this idea that we're shut down, we're not allowed to say what we think anymore, um, and I and I think that that's the worry is that they. Uh, in in this rally, we were able to bring in some people that aren't from the traditional far right. Some of the the people that they had on stage uh, wouldn't necessarily agree with them on on the more traditional um, uh, themes that they that their far right has, mm-hmm. uh, and that that's a, that's a way if they're able to to build a broader appeal as well as take advantage of this convergence that they that they uh, managed to pull off of all of the disparate far right groups
1: they're really trying to grasp that whole defenders of free speech label these days which is something that I think I hope not hate we're trying to show it's a lot more nuanced and that just because you have the right to free speech doesn't mean you have the right to say it And that brings me to no platforming. Uh, Last week, we had a news story about Sam Jima, the university's minister. He warned that universities had to stamp out, uh, I quote, institutional hostility to unfashionable views. So... This has been discussed before. I think uh, the MP Joe Johnson mentioned it last year. He thought there should be fines if um, speakers are no-platformed at universities that because of pressure from students, for example, they are not allowed to talk at a conference. And uh, there have been attempts to censor gay rights activists, feminists, conservative politicians, because some of their views do not agree with a group of students at the university. And I mean, even Nick Lowell, our founder, was no-platform platform by the NUS a few years ago Mm. for being Islamophobic which when you think about what hope not hate does and as we've recently shown of the huge Islamophobia report we've published doesn't quite ring true but what do you think about it?
2: I think it's an issue that requires a lot more thought than I think has currently been given to it, at least in in large framed debates I think one of the things that we at Hope Not Hate have try to do is, is, is be considered in this point of view, while also paying homage to the roots of no-platforming. It comes from a very deliberate, practical standpoint. It was designed to prevent far-right fascist groups from recruiting on campuses. Like mm-hmm. The the term no-platforming has subsequently been expanded massively to mm-hmm. to basically cover, like, I don't like what you're saying, so I don't want to have to mm-hmm. hear it. But it, it's really important to draw it back to where it, where it originates. And yes. I think now what we're talking about in terms of uh, the sanctity of a university campus, as well, again, I think, is, is slightly been manipulated.
1: I mean, it has stopped BNP speakers. It has stopped historian David Irving, who was a big Holocaust denier. And I think it brings the point that not all opinions are equal, and some things sh- shouldn't be debated in 2018, like the Holocaust.
0: I, I think that's. I think that's right. It's, it's, you know, there's a danger in allowing a, a, a debate about whether or not the Holocaust uh, happened. Uh, and, and a lot of hate speech uh, can lead to violence. This isn't a pun intended, purely academic debate. <laughs> 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 Sorry. That was, uh, but, but seriously, it's, you know, hate speech often leads to violence and it's important to protect people. Um, you know, the freedom uh, of speech isn't the only freedom that we have. Freedom from intimidation and in and abuse and, and and violence are also important freedoms. I think that obviously debate and discussion and, and, and academic investigation are really crucial important for universities to thrive and for the for the you know ultimately for the country. But my worry is that the this debate is being engineered as part of a, a you know a kind of a culture war, uh, trying to stoke up uh, division and and um, rancor rather than uh, trying to trying to deal with it. So I I, I wish that this debate about free speech and how to protect free speech was conducted a little um in a a slightly less partisan way on the part of the government
1: Mm -hmm. and i mean this is the first time in 30 years that they've interfered like they've they've talked about it before but it's the first time so and and sam jima said that he would be issuing guidelines to universities but it's such a gray area i mean at what point does a speaker become unacceptable
2: well, I think there's again. I think it's it's important to draw like practical examples rather than talking the, the sort of the morality or the theory of of these freedoms. And one thing that like a prominent uh, part of the no platforming debate came to fruition last year over in the states, where University of California in Berkeley, another really historical place where no platforming has uh, has, has a has a huge past, became the battleground between Milo Yiannopoulos and uh, left wing activists who vehemently opposed his, his appearances there. But practically speaking, is it university's responsibility to defend free speech or is at, at the same time as having to spend loads of money to protect speakers that are inciting, potentially inciting violence or hold such extreme views that cause huge clashes, uh, danger to students, uh, damage to property? Surely these things all need to be balanced against one another mm-hmm. in the in the equation.
1: I mean, personally, I don't think I think guidelines are just going to make things more confusing.
2: (laughs) I'm also very curious as to how people who hold the freedom of speech in a very purest sense, uh, politically speaking, would feel about the government's intervention on such an issue, Um, because I don't think they they're huge fans of government overreach by and large as well.
1: And on top of all of this is whether it's even effective anymore. I mean, with social media nowadays, in a way, no such thing as no platforming. Anyone can say anything on the Internet. So there's that to consider too. And moving on to the interview, Paul Gianassi actually discusses this when we talked about free speech. He kindly agreed to speak to me from a continent away, and I'll let him introduce himself.
3: So I'm Paul Janassia. I'm a police officer while well, working, uh, in Staffordshire Police. Was seconded to, in 2007 to run the government hate crime program. And that was a program set up in the wake of the Stephen Lawrence inquiry recommendations. And it, it followed a review about how government was doing about that. What it decided it needed is that it needed a holistic um, coordination function across the whole of the, the state apparatus to make sure that policy was cohesive. And I was seconded in to run that as a police officer. And I kind of run that ever since, in various forms. I run True Vision, which is a police web portal for victims of hate crime, whether online or in in the street. And I kind of lead on police policy for hate crime.
1: How does the issue of free speech impact your work?
3: Well, massively, because it's it's one of the constraints about activity. So I mean, more importantly than than where does the free speech impact, I, I guess, is where does the harm come from with hate speech. So there is a a real correlation and has been a correlation as far as history gets back about hatred and hate speech and propaganda and how that impacts on people acting out violently so we can say that not everybody who uses hate speech would go on to kill but everyone who kills in hate-fueled activity will either shared or been exposed to hate material that has the effect of motivating and uh, often or normalizing the hatred that they feel. So that kind of exposure to hate material can be Liberating to somebody who already has hate in, inherent in them, or somebody who is vulnerable to the propaganda and having their their worldview influenced by that hate material, particularly when it targets minorities or uh, those or those are not as powerful. So the the same motive, the same emotions um, fuel lots of different types of hate, and there's more similarity for instance, between gender hatred and misogyny and racism, then there is differences.
1: I don't know if you've been following the far right closely. Well, they've had demonstrations for their right of freedom of speech. And there was actually one demonstration last Sunday with, uh, that included Tommy Robinson and Raheem Kassam. So how is free speech under threat, in your opinion, or how do you tackle that kind of rhetoric?
3: I, I think that's largely the the, uh, the nonsense that people use to excuse their own hatred and their own hostility and anything that restricts their right to their uh, ideals, which are often um, not inclusive, they're not cohesive, they're divisive. People use those sorts of lines to try and further their own freedoms. Uh, I'm in the States now talking about just this subject, and it's a very different situation here in terms of the legal framework in Europe. Um, the the European rights framework... Which, which undermine, underpins everything that we do, whether it's law enforcement or, or the state really kind of has a, a, a very reasonable approach, I believe, because it's about the balance of freedom. So what this perhaps is best described as, um, in its simplistic terms is almost a tug of war that where there are the idealists on, on both extremes who won't, uh, see a line of consensus that they, they see a fairly extreme view on the extreme right. We see lots of people who say, that their right to free speech is is significantly greater than than my right or your right to be protected from the hostility that that causes. And then you see people on the other side who think that actually being offensive is wrong because that hurts their feelings. And and what I think the European uh, framework of human rights does is is looks for that line of reasonableness in the middle. That simple tug of war is, is perhaps a simplistic way of looking at, it, because there is also issues around things like the importance of a free media in in a democracy. That the free media has a, an important role of holding, the, particularly the state and the powerful, to account. So actually, that. Is a, is a slight complication for that simple tug of war analogy. But the tug of war is the most is the clearest when we look at those right, those competing rights. So what the what the law says, and what the human rights framework says, is that for us as the state to impinge on a person's freedom of speech and freedom of expression, it has to be lawful, proportionate, um, it has to be necessary for the protection of society. So that for me provides a, an appropriate response that people have the right to be hostile. They have the right to be, to have hostile views and even offensive views. What they don't have is the right to break laws that are there to protect those that society so the the speech is, is is perhaps better viewed as the delivery mechanism for a crime so if you're inciting hatred on race grounds for instance the offense isn't the broadcasting of the material the offense isn't the speech the offense is the stirring up of hatred and the stirring up of hatred is delivered through speech so it can be delivered through a number of ways but more often through speech or through text or through materials or broadcasting so threats to kill somebody is the, the speech isn't the crime. The speech is the delivery mechanism for the crime, which is threatening to kill somebody in unlawful circumstances. So for me, there, there is the, the framework is, 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 is never going to be definitive. There is always going to be a difference of views because context is really very important. For instance, we, we've, we've seen lots of complaints about some of the racist abuse on football players and commentators. And some of them will actually retweet the same message that's been sent to them. Now, not many people would say that they should be criminalized for threatening abusive material, which is racially uh, derogatory. But others, others may think the originator is because their motive was, was, was to stir up kind of distress and harassment. Um, so so the context is really important in this, and, and the framework decision uh, that we, we see help us inform what is what is acceptable in a legal situation.
1: This tug of war, actually, you seem to be talking about it like it's been going on for a long time.
3: Well, it, well, it has. So so the propaganda in Europe in the 1930s is, is, is well documented by people. Significantly better for me to describe it. But we also saw... Um, Radio Kigali in the run-up to the Rwandan genocide. Now we see it in, in, in the wake of terrorist attacks. We see it in the wake of any high-profile incident. We saw it in the run-up to, the, to what were called the xenophobic murders in South Africa in 2008, where people were, were stirring up hostility against the, the Central African migrants who were, who, were, who were fleeing the conflicts in Central Africa. So, so we know that hate speech has a significant role. Rwanda is very real. Uh, the issues around the former Yugoslavia were the same kind of hate speech delivery. So what I wouldn't say is that every element of hate speech brings around genocide, but every genocide, every conflict, every, every, every divisive war tends to have hate speech as either the cause of or a cause of or the impact of that global conflict. So for me, the role of monitoring hate speech and trying to to uh, use the various tools to, to combat it is a really important part of a state's response. And and what I would say is that that role of combating it is, isn't just about the law. The law is one of the tools. It's a really important one because it draws a line in the sand. It says what the state will and what won't tolerate. But it's also about promoting positive messaging. It's about education. It's about supporting targeted victims to deal with the abuse that they face. Uh, and, and it's also about countering that negative. So, supporting those who've got a positive message to say because the people on the the right of the argument if you like on on the extreme that says they're free speech well, but they also say that the way to combat hate speech is through more speech and and they are right but it again it isn't the sole solution and for me what you need is a combination of those five strands of response to combat the problem
1: is there a place which you think handles the balance between free speech and hate speech well
3: I would rather draw the comparison between the U.S. and Europe because Europe shares the same human rights framework. And so I think there are different countries taking on different factors. Um, What has been really useful in recent years is the coming together under the European Commission of a working group to bring the industry in. Now, I've been involved in meetings with the internet industry for some years, and we, we are, um, I would suggest, many years behind where we ought to be in our relationship and, and our understanding of the impact of the global platform for speech, because what was previously there tended to be written material, it tended to be locally published material, and it tended to be control by in this st- in the state where it emanates and what the internet did is obviously changed that significantly and i think the lack of balance between the legislation between one part of the world and the other and the lack of cohesion and, and policy uh joining up on this um, means that it's a, it's produced a, a significant challenge so so what it what it effectively does is creates a situation where the jurisdiction becomes far more difficult to counter. So I think the difference between the US and its dominance of the First Amendment uh, in the in the eyes of many commentators and Europe and its human rights framework and the the restricted freedom of, of Article ten, the right to free speech, and the fact that it isn't an absolute right, it's a conditional right. Is is for me the, the most significant difference between the two and, and what that obviously does is says that the rules in the US of what can be said um, are significantly more lax than they are in Europe uh, because the simple comparison of the the First Amendment says that Congress shall pass no law, which amongst other things restricts freedom of expression and then article 10 being a conditional right to free speech where where the state can control that right under grounds that we've talked about before and there's there's one or two really important cases in Europe that for me best describe where that line goes. and there's a um, a French man called Garray who was a Holocaust denier who was convicted of Holocaust denial in France and criminally convicted an appeal to the European Court of Human Rights saying that his rights were breached by uh, by France's actions and the court said and, and Obviously, this is not a legal interpretation, it's my, my interpretation, but the, what the court said is the right to free speech doesn't extend to the right to stir up hatred or to rewrite history. And, and that France was perfectly within its rights to him for what he did. And I think that, for me, is the, is the, is the clearest difference between the two. And, and one thing I just touched on, which is a significant, pragmatic challenge for policing and law enforcement, is about jurisdiction. So if I'm living in England and, and uh, on holiday in France and posting on an American-based website, the issue of jurisdiction becomes very blurred. I mean, we, we've got a case in that went in the UK called Shepherd and Whittle, which was two uh, white supremacists, and they were they claimed that because they were posted on an American website, they were subject to US jurisdiction. So in UK law, um, the Supreme Court upheld that they were actually within the UK jurisdiction, because where they were effectively pressing the send buttons, where they were committing the offence. So for us, we have some clarity. But from the other side, from other states, they don't have that clarity. So all of these are pragmatic challenges that law enforcement has to grapple with in in trying to bring people to justice.
1: You mentioned a working group uh, working with the tech companies around uh, hate speech versus free speech. Has there been any results?
3: there has yeah so so there's a thing called the cyber hate working group that was set up um after a meeting in Ottawa of the um, interparliamentary coalition to combat antisemitism which found that there was a need to get governments and law enforcement and and stakeholders and the industry together to look at all the hate crime not just anti-semitism but it was it was agreed that it was it was fairly meaningless to go after one type of hate and not deal with them all so that was set up and it reached an agreement with some of the major Silicon Valley based organizations Um which uh, was an agreement that the group reached that that they endorsed. What's moved it on, as I mentioned about the the European Commission and its high-level group on hate crime, which formed in October 2015, and a subgroup uh, uh, looking at internet abuse, and that has formed an agreement with The larger of the social media companies, which is which is their signatories too, which has got significantly further in terms of their commitment to time scales for dealing with complaints and terms of reference, and we've we've seen clear progress in that area. There are clearly lots more challenges they they are and have to grapple with. But in in relation to complaints from members of the public, some of our NGOs in the UK have been part of a monitoring program that has been measuring their their response rate to trusted flaggers as they were called organizations that they trust to to be uh, well motivated and reliable and um, so that we have seen significant progress i, I wouldn't for a minute, suggests that we're where we should be, or that where we could be, and there is lots and lots more that can be done through technical responses and automated responses and, and enhancements of those terms of reference. But we've made significant strides. We've just probably made them ten years after we should have made them.
1: What do you think about no platforming then at universities?
3: My general sense is that universities are influencers. That that there are moral responsibilities on on everybody who has influence over over people. I mean, I can think of people, if I was a vice-chancellor or or I was a student's union, I I could think of people I I wouldn't want to offer a platform to. Um, And I think the right to free speech doesn't extend to the right to be heard. And and some people would suggest that their right to free speech, my right to free speech, means that you you have an obligation to listen to it. And, And that doesn't, for me, ring trick the question is about about whether it's my line of, of reasonless or yours i think what my response would be is that the best way of achieving this is through a, co- a collaboration which has got the students bodies has got the representative bodies together with the communities together with the vice chancellors and i think that's the best way of drawing a line in what isn't isn't acceptable and i think responsible free speech or, or unchallenged Hate speech has got the potential to harm and how you come to find that reasonable balance is very difficult to write in a single policy that says here is the policy. So not allowing platform is the policy or allowing platform is the policy. I think there's a reasonable somewhere in the middle that needs a a mechanism for reaching that line.
2: That was really fascinating. I I especially enjoyed how he um, talked about the difference between freedom of speech and how it's interpreted between the US and Europe in particular.
1: Okay. Um, Martin, I think you have something very special in your hands right now. Do you want to describe what it is?
2: I'm holding a book called Meme Magic Secrets Revealed, and I wish I could share the, the picture of you, or well, maybe stick it up on social media, the front cover, by an author who, no joke, is named Bait Alaska. Um, and th- that's not an uncommon name for people across the alt-right. He is a prominent figure. But I
1: assume he wasn't born with that name.
2: He wasn't. He goes by Tim, otherwise, I believe. Um, A little less boring. I guess if I were a Tim, I might come up with a more interesting name for myself. Uh, No offense to any Tims out there. Um, But basically, you know, what we wanted to share with you, a new segment for the podcast, was uh, our research team, you know, they're they're reading a lot of stuff uh, on a daily basis. Some very, uh, you know, very laborious and academic, in my opinion, at least. And sometimes they get a relief from that with, with books such as Meme Magic. And just to give you a little bit of background on him, he's Alaskan-born, uh, California-residing social media personality and activist, which these days counts as a job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, he used to have a real job. He he, he left Martin, after...
1: you described your job last <laughs> the, in the other podcast as the internet. So I don't know <laughs> if you can judge... <laughs>
2: He, this guy used to work at BuzzFeed, so he did cur- he did have a real job um, at some point. But he left that to go and manage Milo Yiannopoulos' dangerous faggot US college speaking tour. Um, and then he went on to work with another prominent alt-right figure whose name is Mike Cernovich um, to run a grassroots pro-Trump get-out-the-vote campaign. Um, so he's been around. Um, Bates Lasker has turned to uh, writing in, in more long form. And this is uh, his political memoir... On the topic of memes, Meme Magic Secrets Revealed, that's the title again for anyone who wants to purchase it, which I wouldn't encourage you to, um, tells the story of Baked Alaska's descent into a secret network of social media savants, also known as meme posting keyboard warriors, who believe that they can shape reality through their endless, offensive and nauseating (laughs) memes. And I think that's a pretty uh, accurate rundown of the book. I'm basically going to read um, uh, just a, f- a couple of excerpts from it, uh, including one bizarre passage that describes his marriage ceremony to a life-size waifu cushion. A waifu cushion is a fictional character from Japanese non-live-action visual media. You know, like...
1: Non-live-action visual media? Yeah, that media? sort of
2: encompasses like anime, manga, the sort okay. of uh, parts of Japanese culture. And I'm just going to read this passage. I stepped into the next room and my jaw fell open. A miniature renaissance chapel was laid out in front of me. Go forward now, Tim, said Zeke. Go forward with your waifu. Ascend the bridal altar and be wed in mimetic matrimony. We will linger back to witness your union from afar. We are here to wed a new recruit to the ideals of his waifu and all she represents. The two of them shall join our ranks bonded together until death does them part. Will the new recruit please affirm this matrimony with a statement of, I do. I'm very confused. <laughs> so am if I. I think is.
1: everyone who's listened to that is confused.
2: Worst
0: master ace ever. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, continuing on, the waifu and ceremony provided by Baked Alaska's bizarre meme magician gang. And things get weirder when they set the waifu, this is the pillow, remember, that he's married now. Called waifu. No, the waifu is, is what is like, is the name, not the name of the pillow, it's the word for the pillow. Okay. So waifu is... The, <laughs> Things are getting weird They set the waifu alight So that Baked Alaska is then forced to save her Huh? Can we call the pillow a her? This is crazy (laughs) Looks like your waifu's in trouble At that moment the wooden chandelier at the end of the chapel Came crashing down onto the stage And onto my waifu The bridal platform had been turned into a funeral pyre Within the span of six seconds What are you waiting for, Tim? He cried, voice cracking with uncontained mirth Go save your waifu, dude
1: I have no word. So.
2: I'm, I'm baffled. I think this is the last bit I'm going to read. In a dark turn after Baked Alaska asks the leader of the keyboard warriors why they did this. He replies. Why? This is where we're at. This is where we're fighting from. There was no trace or humor or amusement in Zeke's voice now. Instead, I heard only my own hollow broken feelings mirrored in his tone. We have nothing. He added. We have nothing. Don't you get it? A silence fell between us, the longest one yet. What about Trump? I asked after a while.
1: It's it's amazing. Everything goes back to Trump. Like, even a waifu pillow somehow will lead back to Trump.
2: Um, Um, uh, we'll put that to one side. All
1: right, uh, that's it for today. Uh, Here are a few things you can do to help our podcast survive. First, please do subscribe, whether you listen to the podcast on iTunes or some other format. Uh, Do leave a review because the more reviews we have, the more people may listen to it. And do tell all your friends about it on Facebook, Twitter, and if you're young enough, Snapchat. Playing us out of this episode is... Baked Alaska's MAGA anthem. We'll see you next week.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, build